0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have an expert on books and war with us today, uh, Dr. Andrew Pedigree, to tell us about his book that's just come out titled The Book at War, Libraries and Readers in an Age of Conflict. This book takes us through a bunch of different places, times, wars, to help us understand um, what role books and printed media more broadly have played in them. So, Andrew, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
2: My pleasure. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Before we get into books and war, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
2: Yes, uh, my name's Andrew Pettigree. I'm a professor in history at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. I've spent the first half of my career working on the social history of religion, um, specifically on the Reformation era. Um, And I transitioned um, through writing about books in the Reformation to working more generally on communication history about 25 years ago, and that's led to a series of books on the transition from a manuscript to print, uh, the book in the Renaissance, then a book on the first years of the commercialization of news called The Invention of News. I wrote a book on Martin Luther and print, Brand Luther, which combines my two interests, that is the Reformation and book history, And then with a a colleague at St. Andrew's, Arthur de Vedran, I wrote a history of libraries and book collecting called The Library, A Fragile History. Now, I think it's probably that book which decided me to write this book. Um, We'd obviously had to deal with the the difficulties libraries faced in the 20th century in, in our library book, and particularly the damage that uh, was caused by bombing and that's really the normal narrative of books and war that books are always the the victims of war um, and it's very tragic you see an awful lot of damage you see millions of books destroyed and the libraries the physical buildings themselves but even while I we were writing the library book I realized there was a another story to be told that books aren't always innocent victims. They're often protagonists in conflicts. They they create the ideologies which lead to war. They are essential uh, munitions in wartime, good print resources unnecessary for the waging of war. So I wanted to tell that more nuanced uh, story, and I ended up telling it through Introducing a whole range of occupations uh, and types of people who are involved with books in wartime Uh, publishers, troops, prisoners of war, censors, uh, authors, readers, um, the list goes on. And I wanted to tell that story both from a very human aspect, but also without illusions that books are always a civilizing force.
1: Mm. I'm very glad you highlighted that um, goal right at the beginning, because I think it will be fascinating to see as we go throughout the interview. Um, obviously, the book is called Books at War and does sort of therefore imply that it, we're talking about kind of books as we traditionally think of them. But you look at a much more, I think, interesting range of print media in the book. So can you take us through a little bit what that range is and how you decided on it?
2: Well, yes, I have to apologise to your um, uh, listeners here because I'm sort of reflecting my roots as a historian of early print culture, and there we rep- we regard everything as a book that, uh, whether it's a single sheet or a pamphlet or a longer text, which contains movable type—that is, printing. And it's that definition that sort of impacts my continuing work on the book culture of the first 250 years after the invention of printing. And I, I continue to be uh, uh, led by that because, of course, much of the most influential print of the uh, 20th century wars was leaflets often dropped on populations by passing aircraft Um, broadsheets, posters stuck up to tell you what to do and what not to do, or distributed by one of your public libraries, um, as as well as longer uh, books, particularly now in, by the middle of the 20th century, paperback books. So essentially, I try and deal with everything printed that had an impact on
1: events. So that's useful for us to be aware of. Um, Similarly, can you talk us through the time period that the book mainly covers and how you chose it?
2: Yes. Um, Well, you can honestly say that um, books have played a very important part in war ever since warfare began. And so you get the manuscript age um, before 1450, lots of writings uh, about war, some of which have become um, uh, quite uh, well-known now. And then when print comes along, you get a great multiplication of texts on all sorts of subjects. One of the things we do in St. Andrews, um, we have a project called the Universal Short Title Catalogue where we're trying to document or everything printed in the years before 1750. At the moment, we have about 1.3 million different editions. And of them, we've identified um, 3,000 that fall into our classification of military handbooks. So printing about war, either tactics, or how to build fortifications, or great victories won by great generals, Those sorts of books are in circulation almost from the beginning of print, most notably with Machiavelli's The Art of of War. However, if we're going to talk about ideologies and how people are drawn into being eager participants in war, we're looking at a different period. That is the age of mass literacy. Because until, let's say, 1800, war making was waged by uh, subjects, often peasants from the countryside, who fought because their lord told them to. And so books about uh, military tactics were essentially for the uh, gentleman amateur who wanted to catch up on what their opponents were doing. It's only really with the beginning of the military colleges in the 19th century that systematic officer education becomes a part of making war, most famously, of course, with the new Prussian, that is German, uh, military organizations. And then by the second half of the 19th century, you get armies where most of the soldiers are literate and that is pretty much universal in the Western armies by the 20th century.
1: So in addition to the type of media you're examining in the book, could you also give us an understanding of the time period you focus on and how you decided on it?
2: Well, as long as there has been uh, writing materials, people have written about books. But the uh, main uh, time period that I'm involved with, uh, focuses very heavily on the period between the American Civil War and the present.
1: Um, You mentioned the changes in uh, officer education and, of course, uh, the rise of mass literacy and, in some ways, mass warfare. Can you tell us a bit more about the transformation of war making in the late 19th century and what impact that had on the role of the book in wartime?
2: Well, the 19th century is very interesting in technological change. Um, We're speaking in an age now where every new technology that comes along is seen as the harbinger of the death of the book. (laughs) And the death of the book never quite happens, but technology is considered to be adversarial to print. In the 19th century, the opposite was the case. Just about every one of the major inventions assisted the process of getting print into the hands of more and more people. The steam press, for instance, allowed many books to be created much more quickly in much larger editions. The railways helped distribution. The telegraph allowed news to be brought much much faster um to those who would then publish it in in newspapers Uh, and so it went on and the other main major technological change of course was the growth of industry which created huge new uh superpowers like germany which industrialized remarkably rapidly in the second half of Uh, The 19th century. But it also created an industrial population of men and women concentrated in ever-increasing cities of ever-increasing size. And it was clear that these were going to be a powerful force in politics, as Karl Marx uh, obviously recognized one of the first to do so. So the public library movement of those days was partly an effort to shape these new industrial peoples for their role as citizens so public libraries are stuffed with improving literature which would help these people um, with their new with their new responsibilities as citizens. So it's in that respect that these technological changes impacted on the role of books in warfare. It created many more books, but they were had to be created now for a much wider uh, social range of potential readers.
1: So then what did these books say about war? Um, particularly if we think about the sort of beginning of the 20th century leading up to World War I. And what impact do you think these books about war had?
2: Well, I think one of the things that becomes one of the strongest themes of my book is the best propaganda are works not created as propaganda. That is literature intended for the masses, which nevertheless has an underlying ideology which people buy into. In Britain, for instance, one of the most influential of all publications was the Boy's Own Paper, one of many uh, magazines for boys and young men, but actually also Um, much favoured by girls and young women, which had uh, a sort of multitude of imperial heroes. Young, clean-limbed English boys who went out to the colonies, uh, faced incredible dangers, always came out on top, but always showed a merciful and generous side to their enemies. And... Boys loved this, um, and the boys' own paper achieved this extraordinary mix. That not only was it very popular with with boys, it was also um, regarded as appropriate literature by both parents and headmasters. So the boys' own paper had an enormous range, um, and it's very interesting if you think when when people flocked to the recruiting centres in both the, for both the Boer War. And the First World War, um, a journalist asked one of these young men, well, "Why are you? Why are you volunteering?" Uh, and he said, "Well, I just read all the same magazines that the other boys did, and that sums it up in a nutshell."
1: Hmm. No, very powerful um, example that does bring a bunch of things together. Um, moving then from before World War One to after it. One aspect of the book that I appreciated was that it's not just about popular literature and its impact, but also um, speaking as we are to a bunch of fellow academics mainly, uh, also about the kind of academic side of books as well. So can you maybe move us into that realm and help us understand what happened to scholarly knowledge and especially scholarly publications like periodicals between the two world wars?
2: Yes, uh, between the two world wars, I think that um, scholarship, particularly scientific scholarship, reverted to what scientists liked to think of as the norm, which is that scientific um, advances occur through a worldwide free community of science talking to everybody else. Um, And that is particularly important with respect to the uh, scientific literature uh, of the day in periodicals. Periodicals are, are, the, are, are the quintessential way in which scientists share with each other their knowledge. Now, it's it's fair to say also that during the 1930s, particularly in the United States and in Great Britain, uh, science had a distinctly pacifist uh, turn. In the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, a large proportion of the scientists there um, signed a letter saying that they would not be allowing their work to be used for um, purposes of war. It has to be said, however, that once the uh, uh, conflict became inevitable, all the scientists uh, rallied to the patriotic cause, whether they were in the Soviet Union, in Italy, France, Germany, Uh, Britain or America. So now the polarities are changed. It's now important not to share science internationally. That is that the new new, um, parts of periodicals um, should be regarded as state secrets and shared only with your allies. Meanwhile, you're trying desperately through neutral places such as Switzerland to get the local, the latest uh, parts of periodicals published by your enemies. Um, This was particularly so obviously in engineering, physics, chemistry and and especially the new atomic science.
1: So within that, um, could you please tell us about the Yale Library Project and what it speaks to kind of more broadly about the role of knowledge, information, and libraries uh, during the Second World War?
2: The Yale Library Project takes us on to another element of uh, the role of print in, in wartime, and that's intelligence. One of the interesting things about the Second World War from the intelligence point of view is it's essentially a a war of um, interception of radio communication, of prisoner interrogation, um, and of the study of what was known as open source material, that is material which is not classified as secret. Now, Hugh Trevor Roper... Then a junior intelligence officer and the man who who was sent off to verify that Hitler had indeed died in 1945, wrote a best-selling book called The Last Days of Adolf Hitler. Um, He was strongly of the view that spying was largely irrelevant to the intelligence war, and you could get 90% of what you wanted just by a careful study of the publications produced in your, uh, in, in your enemy countries. Now, uh, the Yale uh, Library Project drew directly on that sentiment, and it was an attempt to send buyers to the uh, neutral states in Europe to hoover up vast quantities of books in German, where they can be got, newspapers, telephone directories, technical manuals, guidebooks, anything that would tell you anything about the uh, countries that were now your adversaries. But in fact, this was almost stifled by the anger of the other uh, university libraries and the American Library Association when Yale wangled this permit to go and go fishing for this material. So their agents, the, the academics who were sent off to do this work, had as far as possible to bring back two copies of everything, one for the Yale War Collection and the other to be distributed uh, among these angry competitors. And it's a very good example of how competition between academic institutions can actually almost upset the apple cart um Uh, completely because this delayed the expedition by at least nine months uh, with the result that it was actually 1943 before the Yale library project got underway by which point uh, Switzerland was no longer available um, Vichy France having been rolled into uh, German occupation so it was actually impossible to get in and out.
1: (laughs) That is quite high stakes for uh, interdepartmental wrangling that I'm sure many of us are familiar with. Um, Staying in World War II, but moving from the uh, academics back to more everyday people, um, why did all of the main protagonists in World War II make it such a priority to make sure their troops had things to read? And what exactly were they giving them to read?
2: Well, I think books for the troops was um, also a very uh, important principle of the First World War because people want to give, in, in total war, the entire population wants to do their bit. And sometimes that involves knitting socks for prisoners of war. Sometimes it involves... Uh, starting a market garden so you can grow vegetables and uh, release pressure on imports, or, or sometimes it just means um, rousing out from your, your cupboards any books that you don't want, which could then be sent off to the troops. Now, in f- the First World War, that was uh, very vigorously Um, applied in the combatant nations but not with much success partly because the sort of people giving tended to be middle-class professional households which had collections of books but the people to whom these books were ostensibly going were often uh, working-class conscripts with poor reading skills Uh, and so it didn't really work all that well also the books would have been heavy, they would have been hardbacks. Um, but by the time the Second World War came along, we had just had the paperback revolution. The first Penguin books in Britain were published in 1935, and Penguin very, very quickly took a large slice of the market. These books are much cheaper, um, at a cost of what, about, you could get 15 penguins for the uh, price of one hardback novel. Uh, they were uh, printed in large numbers, and they were regarded as disposable. The early Penguins, of which I own a fair few, have a notice in them on the title page which says, "When you have finished with this book, take it by to a post box, a post office, where it can then be sent on to our troops." Um, so there was this. Uh, collecting for the troops, there was also collecting for prisoners of war, and in America there was the remarkable American Services editions, which was a uh, different paperback initiative, which involved giving um, the authors of recently uh, published uh, fiction and non-fiction minimal royalties for an edition which would then be printed for the troops, especially for the troops, never on retail sale. And it was then distributed to the American forces free of charge wherever they happened to be serving. Now, 80%, 90% of these American services editions were uh, works of fiction. There were some classics as well, going back to the 19th century. Uh, there were some works of poetry. Uh, there were some non-fiction titles, but it was fiction which made up the majority of them. Now, the American um, uh, generals were not naive. They realized that even this wouldn't be the preferred reading material of some of the troops. So they had a special troops... Um, Uh, a special troops newspaper which was distributed all around the world and actually some uh, miniaturized versions of Time and other uh, uh, magazines which were printed especially for the troops without their advertising and so they could easily uh, be shipped overseas. But it was an extraordinary project and created readers... um, uh, in young men who to that point may not have read uh, very much at all and of course it was a, a magnificent effort in, in terms of logistics as well.
1: No very very much so and um, thank you for explaining that to us. Moving back to the home front um You mentioned obviously right at the beginning that libraries are important to this story. So using the example of the public library system in Britain, how did this institution transform between the two world wars and with what impact?
2: Well, I would say that between the world wars, um, the public library system in Britain uh, was on an upward trajectory. The great age of the public library actually is a remarkably small slice of book history. Um, It's only really with Carnegie's initiative to build public libraries in provincial towns and branch libraries in the major cities that the uh, British public library network gets going, even though people look back to 1850 in the Public Libraries uh, Act, which allowed the creation of these libraries, and many towns decided not to. So it's only really at the end of the 19th century that public libraries get going to any great extent. Um, They don't, they're not reckoned to have a have had a very good war in the the First World War. So they're very eager to cement their place in the centre of the communities. And this does take place to a very large extent uh, between in the 1920s and the 1930s, when they're better resourced, when they're organised into uh, county library services, and where the goal of having every citizen community within reach of public libraries, uh, finally uh, comes close to fruition. Of course, the introduction of the paperback in the 1930s is not necessarily good news for the public library movement. Um, Paperbacks were often used to destruction and they weren't very robust, particularly the wartime ones, which uh, were printed with uh, pretty uh, poor paper um and the library couldn't go down the paperback route because they would simply be destroyed too quickly and too regularly by repeated use but at the same time getting hardbacks was far more expensive <clears throat> and in addition bookbinding services became both more expensive and more difficult to access as many skilled bookbinders went off into war industries where they were paid a great deal better. So it was extremely difficult for libraries to keep up their standard of service through through the war, even though they made a particular effort to do so, taking in refugees from other parts of Britain, giving them library cards, often uh, opening specially at the weekends for... Um, members of the armed services uh, settled in camps near near to the town so they had a pretty good war not least um, when there were salvage drives for books which became a major feature because paper could be pulped and then reused And this brought in something like 60 million books in in Britain and similar quantities in the other combatant nations. But, of course, people were throwing out things that they didn't want, which is fair enough for pulping, but they were often throwing out things which could be quite useful. So librarians inserted themselves into this process, doing a triage of things given for uh, the pulping uh salvage process and sometimes coming up with some pretty spectacular books which they then rerouted either to the public libraries or to the various war uh, ministries uh, technical books um, guidebooks of different parts of germany where they could be used um uh, there and, and sometimes also to rebuild the collections of bombed public libraries as in southampton plymouth Coventry and so on. So librarians were very creative during the Second World War at building on the interwar uh, uh, improvement of the whole service.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: If we move then to examine um, a similar sort of question, but on the other side of the front lines, you mention in the book that the Nazis both, quote, simplified and complicated the production of wartime literature. Can you walk us through that seeming contradiction? Well,
2: I think they simplified the process by having their own publisher that ate up an a, other um uh, uh, companies and so came quite close to being a monopoly publisher um and having enormous uh, royalties and income which went straight back I- I into the nazi party on the other hand um there's nothing uncomplicated about the power structure in nazi uh germany Hitler rather enjoyed having multiple agencies with conflicting and overlapping responsibilities because it meant in the last resort every decision had to come back to him. And this was particularly so with issues such as censorship and distinguishing which books were to be banned and which were not to be. Nazi Germany is always associated with banned books because of the spectacular display of book burnings that occurred in 1933 but it was a long time before they had anything like a coherent list of books which were to be removed from public libraries and even then this might be generic categories rather than individual titles and that of course um required a high degree of sophistication on the part of the librarians who were meant to be removing these books. Um, And some of them were extremely reluctant to hand these books over for destruction or to destroy them themselves. So they tended to be removed from the public shelves and put down in some sort of basement repository um, where they would be um, where many of them remained until the end of the war when they could be taken out again. Obviously, in the context of National Socialism, the works of Jewish authors were absolutely forbidden. But of course, thats it's not always clear that um, librarians would know which um, authors were Jewish. And so even some of them were likely to have survived on the shelves. The other interesting thing about the, the books in the Nazi war effort is that Goebbels ran one quite an important battle with the library community by insisting that if books were to be made for the German troops, they should be light recreational material rather than ideology. Um, and that was a view that prevailed it's also the case that as the tide of war turned against germany um, books for the civilian uh, population became increasingly hard to get hold of uh, not least because all the major um, uh, armed forces had their own paper allocation and so it made far more sense to let's say print exclusively for the luftwaffe than for the German public.
1: Hmm. No, a very interesting debate. I can almost kind of imagine what what the conversations in those rooms would have been like. Um, to that point of protecting libraries and books, if we broaden it out from thinking about, um, obviously, Nazi censorship in terms of authors, thinking about World War II and libraries beyond that... How did libraries try to protect their books? Obviously, you mentioned earlier that it wasn't successful in places like Plymouth or Southampton. Um, what what else was going on?
2: Well, um, the, the importance of bombing was recognised by the 1920s and 1930s. And the English Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin, famously said, The bomber will always get through. And that was the general expectation at the start of the war. So, uh, art galleries, museums, and libraries had had a long time to think of this by the time 1939 came along. And the best set of uh, protocols on how to deal with this situation were uh, devised by Italian librarians. And they established three categories. One was the books from the very first age of printing and medieval manuscripts, which should be sent to a safe location automatically, because, as you know, most of the, the, the sort of splend- most splendid libraries were right bang, right bang in the middle of cities, where they were inevitably going to be the victims of bombing, even if not specifically targeted. So that was the first category. The second category was other rare books, other rare printed material, particularly particular to the uh, locality, which would likely to be very rare, and they should be in the second category. And the third category was all the rest of the stock, which was expected to stay in place, because libraries remained important resources, both for recreational reading and for war-making. Now, these Italian protocols were uh, freely shared around the library community. In some places, like Germany, it wasn't possible to put them into effect before the war, not least because uh, General Goering had, uh, Field Marshal Goering had promised that not a single bomb would fall on Berlin. So if you were to move your books, it might be seen as defeatism. So they were rather slow on the mark. But later in the war, a lot of German library books were disappearing into uh, salt mines, uh, castles, remote uh, uh, places of safety where they were least likely to be bombed.
1: And to what extent did this succeed?
2: Um, Not so very well, Um, because uh, for most of the war, the bombs were coming from the West. Um, Most of the German uh, library uh, sought sanctuary for their books uh, going eastwards. And of course, that meant that the places of safety at the end of the war often ended up behind the Iron Curtain in areas occupied by um, the new East German Communist State, uh, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Poland. So in other words, all in places under Soviet influence. So a lot of these books, uh, very, very few of these books ever came back Uh, to the West, because by this point, there was plunder in Germany, not only from Poland and Ukraine, Belarus, uh, but also from the Netherlands and France and Belgium. Enormous sort of bringing together of bookstock in Germany. So a lot of these French and Dutch books had been allocated to libraries and then went eastward um, to get away from the bombing, which meant that uh, most of them were in land from which they would never return to, to uh, the western state of Germany, which was uh, created after the war. So many of them, uh, their fate is still unknown. Some now are catalogued, for instance, in the Library of the Berlin State uh, uh, State Library, Staatsbibliothek, as under their present uh, location. So you'll have books which are in Roslav or Warsaw or um, Leningrad or Moscow, all listed in that uh, catalogue. It's rather fascinating read, actually.
1: I can imagine. You discuss in the book that this kind of books ending up in all sorts of places isn't just an issue for German books. In fact, you go so far as to say that the bookstop of Europe more broadly was, quote, hopelessly jumbled. So if that's one of the solutions created for uh, German books, what else was done about this confusion more widely?
2: Well, the real point here is that the the, the German policy which to which it was Tended to do uh, in a dictatorship changed radically uh, a couple of years in the war into the war. At first, it seemed that the war's attitude to books on the German side would be to destroy the complete culture of enemy peoples, and that particularly applied both to uh, Jewish culture but also Polish culture. Po- Poland was to be reduced to a a nation of agricultural workers with uh, elementary education only. But then it dawned on the lead ideologues of Nazism. If this was to be a, a th- thousand-year Reich, that should have the resources to understand their enemies, Jews, socialists, Freemasons, um trade unions, in case they rear these, these forces reared their ugly head again. So they set up in the most elaborate and ambitious plan for 10 libraries of 500,000 books each, each studying a historical problem which might come back to haunt the thousand year Reich. In addition, All the other institutions of Nazi Germany, such as the Gestapo, the SS, were all creating their own libraries from stolen uh, books. So this meant that when um, they occupied the Netherlands, for instance, um, that certain libraries became the subject of a huge tug of war between several uh, Nazi institutional organizations which wanted these books. Uh, and some of them were divided a lot of private libraries were when jewish families were taken away to the camps all of their possessions were deemed to be confiscated and that in, included their libraries some of those then went into public libraries in germany some to replace books which had been bombed by the allies so when you get to the last end of the, the last years of the war books are crisscrossing. The, the continent, trying to find a safe place um, from the increasingly destructive bombing of Germany. And so many books were, 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 were plundered that many of them never got out of their packing cases. Now, if that was the case, you were lucky uh, because those books could then be sent back to the libraries from whence they came. Those that ended up in Frankfurt for instance, a lot of books were repatriated from them to France and to the Netherlands. But any Dutch books or French books which ended up on the other side of Central Europe, they never came back. They were simply absorbed, if they were required, into libraries in Belarus or, 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 or Russia. So it's very difficult even now to trace the fate of many books, either from institutional collections or personal collections, which were absorbed and often uh, didn't have any sort of a stamp of ownership within them at all, Um, as do many of my books, have no indication that I'm, I'm, I'm their owner. So this caused a great deal of chaos, and in the state of Europe at the end of the war, the identification of the owners of hundreds of thousands of pretty mundane books, because many of them, particularly those taken from personal collections, wouldn't have been remarkably valuable, uh, must have seemed a very low priority for those uh, involved in, in this business.
1: Mm. Fascinating. Um, additional piece to consider of the chaos of the end of World War Two. The um- Coming then to the end of that conflict, as we have, uh, you mentioned at the beginning that was kind of the main scope of the book. But before I ask you uh, about your next projects, is there anything further you'd like to say about this book?
2: Well, I I hope readers uh, enjoy it um, and uh, enjoy it as much as I enjoyed writing it. It was something of a COVID uh, book. It um, was what I was working on in fact i'd already written quite a lot of uh, chapters before covid began uh, but it did, it was two years where i actually spent quite a lot of time collecting uh, books from from the 20th century war books or books published during the war and and that was very interesting because it's obviously much easier to co- make a collection put together a collection of uh, paperbacks from the mid 20th century than it is to collect books from the 16th and 17th century, which which I've worked on in previous projects.
1: Yes, I can very well imagine that. Um, Well, just a note to listeners that, of course, there's a lot more detail and stories in the book itself. Um, So if you're intrigued by what you've heard, uh, please do check it out. But Andrew, before I let you go, um, given that you do work on so many projects, uh, this being just your latest, is there one you've got your eye on next you'd like to preview briefly for us?
2: Well, at the moment, I'm spending a a lot of time helping my team with the work of uh, enriching the Universal Short Title Catalogue. We've got about two million pieces of data uh, which have been provided for us by libraries around the world. And so we're integrating those extra copies into the Universal Short Title Catalogue, which I should say is a free access resource you it's uh, not behind a paywall so anyone who types ustc into their browser will get straightforward access to it and in the process we're also turning up many hundreds and shortly thousands of previously unknown editions from the first age of print uh, and that's very exciting um, I'm not going to start writing another book until the, uh, t- thinking about and talking about the book at war begins to slow down. Uh, but then I've got two projects. One is to write a history of communication from the singing Neanderthal to TikTok, you know, the whole history of communication across the span of humanity. Uh, and the other thing I want to do is write a book called the, uh, rise and fall of the newspapers, Uh, And take that from a time in the 19th century where newspapers dominated both the news world and the reading experience of many millions of of, of citizens. And go from that to the present rather messy ending of uh, the newspaper story.
1: Hmm. Well, those potent, those future books sound fascinating, and of course, um, the massive project with cataloging all the books—it's a very, very cool project. I've been on that website, um, so oh, good! Best of luck to you and your team for that. <laughs> um, it's very cool. Um, but just to remind listeners again, the book we've mainly been discussing is "The Book at War: Libraries and Readers in an Age of Conflict." Andrew, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
2: It's been my pleasure.